pastor's daughter attends a church in Oregon that focuses mainly on the first part, on God and his inexhaustible love. She was in the front of that concert in Las Vegas on October 1st. She's 34 years old, the mother of three. She was dancing and partying when a woman two feet in front of her suddenly developed a wound in the neck, spurted blood, and fell to the ground. When my niece realized what was happening, she also fell to the ground and pretended to be dead, subsequently suffering a, an injury as someone stepped on their neck in a panic to get out of that place. Conversing with my niece later on on the phone, she was in shock. She wondered and doubted the love of God. How could he have let this happen, she asked. Her view of God is that he is love sort of winking at our sinfulness, benevolently protecting his self-indulgent children. God is love, but he doesn't benignly look down while his creatures presume upon his grace. So let's look at this psalm together. Uh, the psalm breaks down easily for us, structured in four dramatic acts. And those acts are in your outline. They each begin with the letter I, and you can just write that one word in the margin of your Bible to help you have further reference to it. They begin with the letter I, not because I'm creative, but because I stole it from some commentator this week. So, you know, don't uh, give me too much credit there. Each one of these acts uh, is a voice of a per certain person and changes in the next act. In Act 1, verse 1 through 3, we have the insurrection of man. The psalmist is speaking here, amazed at the rebellion of the nations. In Act 2, verses 4 through 6, we have the indignation of God. God speaks. From the throne of his rule, he proclaims a building anger at the people of earth. In Act 3, verses 7 through 9, we have the installation of the sun. God's anointed one speaks. He reveals God's irresistible plan for eternity. In Act 4, verses 10 through 12, we have the invitation of God. The author speaks again and invites men to turn back to God before it's too late. So four different acts, each will beginning with an eye to be more easily remembered. Verse 1 begins, Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? Though the author of the psalm isn't uh, stated in the superscription, the New Testament gives us commentary as to who wrote these. And we find there in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, that they're ascribed to David as the author. Let's realize that the psalm, like many passages of Scripture, depicts something that happened in real time. David is penning these words as king of Israel, writing them out and depicting a situation that was taking place in his actual life. But like many passages of Scripture, simultaneously, there's a foreshadowing of a greater reality, something beyond just David in circumstances of his life. Looking at David's life, we need to review a few basic facts. David was anointed as king, called from the field where he was keeping the sheep by Samuel the prophet, many years before he was actually coroneted and installed as king over Israel. This took place before he killed Goliath before he was called upon to play his lyre or his harp to soothe the stressed soul of disobedient King Saul, 
before he became the one who led the armies of Israel and Saul's nation in and out to victory, before he became the poster child on Saul's enemy number one list that was posted in every village post office. After years of struggle, fleeing from Saul and trusting in God, refusing to take advantage of his own popularity, of his, his opportunities twice to slay Saul, Saul comes to a tragic end. It's then that the tribes of Judah and Benjamin gather around David and install him as king. And then later on, the other tribes come in. And that whole situation is shown to us in 2 Samuel chapter 5, 1 through 2. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. And they said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will be my shepherd, and you will watch over my people Israel as my ruler. David's rise to the throne was absolutely sure. It was in place the minute it was announced by the prophet Samuel. But scholars feel it was 15 years at least between the time of his anointing there in Bethlehem to the time of his ascension to the throne over Judah and Benjamin. Then another seven years before the other ten tribes acknowledged him as king. And even after his installation, which had come about according to the prophesied word of God, David's life continued in turmoil as the nations sought to dethrone him. The Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Rehabites, and the Syrians each took a shot at him. Each sought to bring him down. David's rise to the throne is absolutely sure for it had been based in the unchangeable, invariable word of God. We might well wonder and see how David could have inquired, why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. Why the revolt? Why the turbulence? Why this directed anger at me and against our, my throne and against my people? The answer is because the revolt isn't really against David, is it? It's against God. It's against God who established David on his throne. It's against God who declared that his name would reside in that one place in all the earth and that men might come to him. It's against God's anointed. David merely foreshadows a truer and greater reality that the rebellion that we see upon earth today is against God's anointed, Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. Aren't you and I continually amazed at the rebellion around us, at the turmoil that takes place in our nation and other nations, how they seem to be systematically and with increasing boldness taking down the name of Christ, wiping it out from the public arena. Christian persecution is greater in this century than it's ever been before. The 20th century was the bloodiest century of persecution towards Christ, and we're on a record pace to exceed that in this century also. Islam, Hinduism, secular humanism, militant atheism, rampant indifference, all seem to find tolerance for anything except for Jesus Christ. And we're amazed. What has Christ done? How has he so offended? How can men so admire 
and quote his Sermon on the Mount and yet so militantly reject him. David wonders how the nations can rage and plot against God. Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their feathers apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. The kings of the earth, those accounted great among men. They're the rulers of the great powers. Today, they're probably the G8, the G20, the UN Security Council, and the like. It's a matter of public record from these men's meetings that they sit and plot and plan the future of the world with total disregard to God. They ally to determine economic direction, social order, and political agenda. And through their maneuvering, they often control the direction of lesser nations. They propagate their agendas of population control through murderous abortive practices and global warming and other things, and they enforce compliance with their economic clout. They push an LGBT agenda in every place in the name of a new social order for mankind, replacing the old social order associated with an antiquated Christianity. This is decidedly an anti-God group of rulers. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And notice not just the guys at the top, would you? The psalmist mentions the rulers. Those are the little guys, not just the kings and presidents. These are the university professors. These are the judges in our courts. These are the, the principals and the teachers in our school districts. They're the mayors of small towns, journalists, and corporate HR people. They're found in every walk of life, people of influence, pushing an agenda against Christ and against God. Travis mentioned a cross-dressing, gender-confused male teacher at one of our local Greeley schools who dresses like a woman and insists on being called some name I think that's neutral, insists on standing before our youth as a model of life to teach his, her agenda. And when the parents protested, the administration stood up in full support of this person to have the right to express themselves fully in whatever way they desired. Children at the lowest levels of education are being given textbooks that support abhorrent and aberrant lifestyles and other agendas. Do you know one of the greatest fears that young people have today? It's the fear that we're killing Mother Earth. My grandson began the year in a classroom where the teacher stood before the students and with tears in her eyes declared there were no more trees in the Amazon rainforest. And there was no more ice in the North Pole and the polar bears were, were dying because of the lack of ice. When my grandson pulled up on Google Earth, proof that that wasn't true, he became very unpopular. <laughs> you know? The plot goes from top to bottom. Who's it aimed at? The Lord. The Lord and his anointed. That's the bottom line. That's where the ultimate hatred lies. Against the rules of God. And what do these kings and rulers say? Let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. That's the ultimate plot. To remove whatever restraints God has set up. Anything that makes man feel restricted in his freedom. I'm looking at an audience and I see gray hair or I see light shining off the tops of others. 
Many of us grew to maturity in the age of the 60s. We went to sleep with Joan Baez crooning in our ears the night they tore old Dixie down. And love is just another four-letter word. Our slogans were, make love, not war. Never trust anybody over 30. And then my favorite, grow up, join the army, see the world, meet new people, and kill them. Yeah. We demonstrated against Vietnam. We protested at the Kent State shootings. We, we wanted to tear down the establishment. We advocated free love, and we smoked our pot in defiance of social norms. As children of the 60s, we're familiar with rebellion and the heady feelings of anarchy as a hundred, a thousand gather together and shout to bring down the administration of a school or, or some other thing. We wanted no moral restraint. We wanted total freedom to pursue whatever agenda was best in our eyes at the time. Let us tear. The idea is to utterly destroy, to, to break and asunder, to wreck and leave in ruin. Fetters are something used to confine or to restrain. It's like the leg irons you'll see on some of the movies when the dead man walking is headed towards the uh, gas chamber. You know, when they're coupled with cords, we get a picture of the yoked ox with the cords running up from the reins of the person holding them through the sides of the yoke and into a ring placed in the sensitive nose of the ox. They're designed to control the power that's there and to bring restraint and to make the ox useful. Man was created to glorify God. And that glory is coupled with usefulness. We weren't created as an ornament to be set on a shell, to be admired for our beauty. The God of all creation created each of us gifted to fulfill certain roles, to, to bring him honor as we use our skills and our talents and our gifting and our, our abilities and our knowledge in the fulfillment of his divine purpose. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them and in so doing glorify him. But men rebel. They feel constrained by the limits that God has put on them. God established a moral order in the sexual realm. Men and women exchanged the natural sexual functions of one another for same-sex unions. Let us tear their fetters from us. Men and women declare their dissatisfaction with their chromosomal makeup. And they have operations and take artificial hormones to change their sexual structure. Let us cast their cords from us. God establishes a moral order for the home. Men who are to lead, provide for, and protect become passive hulks, sitting in darkened dens, cheering on a football team, wearing a jersey for a player that they'll never meet and never know, or studying their cell phones or on their computers, ignoring the needs of their wife and their children. Let us tear their fetters from us. Women refuse to be helpmates, according to God's design, undermining their weak-willed men, belittling any feeble effort they might make to lead, refusing to respect their husband. Let us cast their cords from us. That's an antiquated view. 
We know what it is to be liberated in our day. God establishes a moral order for the church. Men refuse to teach the full counsel of Scripture, ignoring sections unpopular with current social norms, programming their churches so that they will become a success as their church balloons in numbers and thus stroking their own egos. Women insist on a non-differentiation of leadership roles in the church, declaring men are inadequate to represent their fair gender. Let us tear their fetters from us. Let us cast their, their lines away from us. What we see in that first stanza, I think, is a panoramic view of human history. It was the reality of life, as the psalmist wrote those words over 3,000 years ago, it was the generation that followed, admired, spurned, rejected, crucified, and buried the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the generation that we have today which is continually announcing its rebellion by decrying and driving God's voice from the public arena and from every stage. And the Bible says it's this generation that will also stand and take their stand against God and his anointed in the last days before the return of Christ. I believe that's what we're seeing in our world today is that rebellion against God's moral restraints in the world. We have the insurrection of man. And God, God's dismayed, right? He sits in a lonely throne room pondering what man is doing and hangs his head and puts his head in his hand and sighs. Right? Wrong. <laughs> Look at Psalm 2. It's the se- or Psalm 2 in the second act. God speaks, verse 4 through 6. This is terrifying. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them with his fury, saying, But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That's the voice of God. We hear so much today about the love of God. Systems of evangelism are built around that central theme. They proclaim God loves you and God has a wonderful plan for your life. Churches proclaim that message from pulpit after pulpit. God loves you. God wants, no, strike that. God needs fellowship with you. Come to Jesus. He will make your life wonderful. And you will make him so very happy. The sad thing is there's a partial truth in those words. God does love man. And he does plan for man's good. But principally, he plans for his own glory. And that's the truth leads us to a fuller understanding of God. God is love, but he is also a God of justice and, dare I say it, of wrath. Someone has said, and it's true, God is angry with the sinner every day. What's depicted in verse 4 is God enthroned in the heavens. He's sitting in calmness in a position of absolute power and rule. He who sits in the heavens laughs, laughs, laughs. It's not the laughter of juvelity or, or of mirth. It's the laugh of derision. It's the laughter of mockery. It's this world of creatures who would dare to rebel against their creator. It's almost the laughter that a giant might express as a flea hops around in its anger on his backside. 
It's as though God leans over the battlements of heaven and strains to look down, finally locating puny little man and with his tiny little displays of anger and fury. And God laughs. It's a derision that was expressed by Elijah on Mount Carmel. You remember they gathered the prophets of Baal. They'd slayed their, their sacrificial animal. They'd laid it upon the, the wood to be burned. And, and they were expecting Baal to consume it with his fire from heaven. For he was the God of thunder and lightning. And they cried out until noon. They exhausted themselves finally cutting and offering their own blood. And Elijah came and he mocked them and he said, Call out with a loud voice. He's a god. Either he's occupied and gone aside, or perhaps he's on a journey. Or maybe, maybe he's asleep and needs to be awakened. God's laughter should be very frightening when it rings out into this world of rebellion. The Lord scoffs at them. This word is used to describe one who imitates the stammering of a stutterer. God sits enthroned. He doesn't bother to rise. He doesn't disturb himself. He remains at rest. His plan carries forward unaffected by all the schemes and all the plotting of men. In fact, by his sovereign power, God makes the purposes of men tributary to his own, making the very men who defy him instruments of his own plan. That's probably best seen in Acts 4, speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Peter prays, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Acts 4, 27-28 The eternal plan of God was that the eternal Son should die at the hands of mortal men, sinful men. But those actions of these sinful men were freely expressed as they plotted and planned and then executed the Son. They acted freely within the confines of their own sinful natures while God's ordained plan carried on despite them, even using them. Thus God caused the wrath of men to praise Him. In a more contemporary example, when Mao Zedong entered into power in China, his implement of enforcement was the Red Guard. The Red Guard were vicious thugs who held forth in every town and every city and in every village. They ruled with violent, aggression, aggressive oppression using their dictatorial powers to crush anything they saw as in opposition to Mao's agenda. Some of the most virulent and vehement of their expressions were against the Christian church. All of the missionaries were expelled from China between 1945 and 1953, and many felt that that would be the death knell of a very weak church that existed in China at that time. But the opposite thing happened. The more the Red Guard oppressed, the stronger the church grew, and the more it began to blossom. In his wisdom, Mao issued an edict that no longer could any two Christian families exist in any village in China. And those who existed in the cities were forbade to gather together. And so the Red Guard, with zeal, enforced the Edict of Mao and dispersed the Christian families to the far-flung reaches of China. Well, a funny thing happened. Where they went, they shared Christ. And the church began to grow in different spots in different places. And in effect, 
God causing the wrath of man to praise him, the Chinese government became the largest sending missionary organization there's ever been. It's an incredible thing. God truly is in his heavens. He truly is in control, and we don't need to worry about it. But God's not stoic. Sometimes we get this view that he's passive, just sitting and watching and letting it all unfold. But verse 5 says, He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them with his fury. Here we see the passions of God arise. Look at those words there in verse 5. He'll speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Both those words speak of heat, of heavy breathing. They're used to describe the, the snorting of a war horse about to ch charge into battle. It's the necessary response of God when his holiness is spurned by his unholy creatures, when his holiness is rejected. It must be answered. The violation of God's holiness requires justice. Every sin, you've heard this said before, but every sin ever committed from Adam to the last man will be paid for in full. It will either be pardoned by the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, eternally paid for on the cross, or it will be paid eternally by the sinner who will never come to the end of his debt toward God. If you don't understand how the wages of sin is death, why man in his puniness and his feebleness deserves the absolute fullness of the justice of God, then you do not understand the holiness of God and how offensive sin is to that holiness. But as for me, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. As for me, this is God speaking as he views the rebellion of kings and rulers. It doesn't matter what men plot or declare. God's decree overrules all. I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, we've spoken of this it originally pointed to God's promise to install David as king over Israel but then it pointed to the generations to succeed him it was a promise of an eternal kingdom the final fulfillment was the full revelation of Jesus Christ who has ascended now and seated at the right hand of God ruling and yet not fully manifest as ruler upon the earth men had their plans they sought to throw off the rule of God but God's plan goes ahead uninterrupted. He installed. God says, it's a done deal. I have installed my king. When David wrote that psalm, he was reigning. God had installed him despite the best efforts of Saul, of the nations around him, of the other ten tribes of Israel. The installation of Christ is still future, but it's just as sure, just as complete just as absolutely positively going to happen or is happening as it was in the day when David was prophesied to be the ruler over Israel. Looking at a world in chaos, do you and I believe that God's really enthroned? Do we really believe that he's in charge? Do we trust that every day, in every issue we face, every sadness, every disappointment, every painful experience that it's God who is at work to will and to do in you according to his good pleasure? Do we really believe that God causes all things to work together for good? 
for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose? Do we really believe he's reigning? And even those things, those hard things that come into our life, are under not only his sovereign control, but under the merciful grace of Jesus Christ. So we've seen that the insurrection of man, the indignation of God. In the next act, we need to see the installation of the Son. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Here in verses 7 through 9, the speaker's voice changes again. Here we have the son speaking in a depiction of his installation. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, now this is a rare privilege. We get to understand an inter-Trinitarian dialogue that took place in eternity, long before the earth was created. Some critics of the church tell us that our worship of Jesus is false. They claim that there's no place in Scripture where Jesus actually declared that he was God. I beg to differ. If nowhere else in your Bible, it's writ large on every page of the book of John. In instance after instance, place after place, Jesus declares himself to be not just a man, but more than a man, to be God alone. From the prologue on, there's that declaration on every page. Perhaps it's most clearly seen in the seven I am statements where he took on the very appellation that God gave for himself. I am. Tell them, I am who I am. Jesus equated himself to I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ called himself God. In John chapter 4, he's meeting with a woman at the well. She's a indifferent person. She doesn't believe there's anything in religion for her because she so rejected the norms of her society and other places. But Jesus speaks to her. As he speaks to her, light dawns in her heart, and she says, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And what did Jesus say in response to that? I who speak to you am he. The very one you spoke of. The one who knows all things. God, very God of very God. I am him. Or there was the time when the Sanhedrin had arrested Jesus. They couldn't find good witnesses. And finally, they put him under oath. And they said, in the name of the living one, tell us, are you the son of God? And Jesus looked at them and said, I am. And one day you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God in judgment. And they tore their robes and they swore him to death, judged him there on the spot. Psalm 2 is a declaration that God made an eternity past when there was only the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's a decree of God. And what we see in Psalm 2.7 and other places is a revelation of this truth to men. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The statement has caused a great deal of debate throughout church history. As early as 300 A.D., Arius, a presbyter of Alexandria, Egypt, propounded that Jesus was not God. 
He was a merely a creation of God, begotten or created. That heresy was soundly defeated in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. But that argument has remained among men from that time on. Today it's probably most prevalently known in our society among the Jehovah's Witnesses. They contend as proof of their doctrine that Jesus couldn't be God. John 4, 6, where Jesus became tired, or Matthew 24, 36, his not knowing the hour or the day of his return. They also love this passage in Psalm 2, where it talks about him being my begotten, and this day, you know, I've installed you. And then this parallel in John 1, 14, where John identifies him as the only begotten of the Father. Now, there's a lot of theology here, and I don't have time to go into it all, but this issue is the hypostatic union, the perfect melding of two complete natures, human and God, into one man. And, you know, I don't have time to expound all this. I wish I did, but let me just say a few brief words here. Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, that's not an idle verse. It speaks of the fact that Jesus' eternality, but it also speaks to his divine place from eternity in the Godhead. We know that God is the one who exists as one, yet in three eternal persons. It's a mystery, but I want to emphasize that this is Jesus who has always existed, always existed as the eternal Son of God. Some theologians think he became the Son when he was conceived in Mary's womb, but scholars and the evidence of Scripture and theologians over time have really debunked that and shown that he had to be the same from eternity past to eternity present to eternity from now on. In other words, there was never a time when he was not the son. There was never a time when that father-son relationship did not exist in the Godhead. This doctrine recognizes that the idea of sonship is not merely a title or a role that Jesus assumed at some specific point in history, but it's an essential part of his identity as the second person of the eternal trinity. Begotten, then, doesn't mean created, doesn't mean brought into being, it doesn't mean conceived, it means manifest. Finally, in the fullness of time, manifest, that men might fully understand the complete revelation of God. All that had been promised summed up in the Son. And in the Son, in eternity, all will be summed up in Him. So today means Christ has entered into the fullness of His Sonship. The progress of revelation is complete in the fullness of time. He is confirmed in His role, eternally existing, now glorified and exalted and magnified at the right hand of God the Father. Here we see the installation of the Son accomplishing all of God's will, now sitting at the right hand of the Father. In verse 8, the Son continues, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Ask of me for your possession. One day the Son comes in all of his glory, and he subdues the nations. He calls to himself all those who throughout eternity have been placed into the fraternity of the believers, into the fellowship of the believers. He will reign for a thousand years 
in fulfillment to his, the covenant to David, and he will reign forever on the throne in the new Jerusalem. And what will the son do with the nations as his possession? You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The king on his coronation has given a scepter. The father puts in his hand a symbol of his office to rule over the nations. But note that this isn't just a ceremonial scepter. It's a rod of iron. And it's in the hands of the Lord, the Lord of all creation. He will use it to break and crush all of the rebellion against him at some point in time. It's the same picture given to the Lord Jesus when he reigns on earth in Revelation chapter 19, 15, and 16. It says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Get that picture in your mind. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Depicted here is the ease of the victory over the sun against the gathered might of all the nations who are defying him. He will sweep his scepter out and he shall shatter them as a crazy man in a potter's shop with an iron bar in his hand, breaking them asunder and scattering the pieces so that they never can be put back again. At the end of the age when Jesus returns, he doesn't come riding meekly on the foal of a donkey. He's depicted as riding on a white stallion, the symbol of victory that a Roman general rode as he came into Rome with all of his army and their full regalia behind him, followed by the booty that he gathered as he subdued the nations around Rome, and then finally the captives, shackled and following along behind and total submission to the one who rides the horse. So we see the insurrection of man, the indignation of God, the installation of the Son, and the final stanza. We see the invitation of God. These final verses speak of God's love and his mercy, but hear me well, they mean nothing if we don't understand the first three stanzas of the hymn. Here we see the incredible heart of God's mercy. Now, therefore, O kings, this is a plea. Show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to his son that he might not become angry and you perish on the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed, how blessed are those who take refuge in him. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. O judges, of, beware, O judges of the earth. Take warning. Beware, because you do know that there is a God. Even the militant atheists know there's no God. When Sherry and I were dating before we'd gotten married, some of our earliest conversations was me an agnostic who believed that God had created the world and, and taken a, a vacation, trying to convince her, an atheist, that there was a God and she ought to worship him. Now, you can imagine the intellectual enlightenment of those conversations. <laughs> well, one day, um, we were riding my motorcycle down a very steep road, and she was on the back. 
I don't know what it is about my wife, but she's not intuitive on the back of a motorcycle. You lean into a curve, and she leaned the opposite way, and it makes the bike a little bit unstable, and we're on a slick road. And so the bike slipped over an embankment, and we were headed down into this little gorge, only to be stopped by a, a barbed wire fence. As we're on the way down, this militant atheist behind me shouts, Oh, God! And that was the first shot across her bow by a sovereign God because she wondered, how could I have shouted that? I don't believe there is a God. But she realized when push came to shove, she knew there was. And so does every man out there. We all know there is a God, and we all know we're accountable to him. God, as he has throughout history, an incident after incident, before judging, issues a warning. It isn't a belligerent warning. It's a plea. It's a reasoned warning. It's as if God is saying this, you've seen that my will cannot be thwarted. You've seen here what I purpose I bring about. Herod tried to thwart my will by killing all the newborns around Bethlehem. He failed. Caiaphas tried to thwart my will by killing my son. Instead, he fulfilled my will. Show wisdom, O leaders. Come to me in submission before I exercise the power of my scepter. What should be the response of mankind? Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Reverence him. That word can be fear him. But fear him in the good sense. I grew up with a dad who was rather rough. He was um, raised by a sharecropper in Texas and he was uneducated, and he had a pretty strong temper, but he loved me. And somehow I feared him, and I loved him at the same time. I watched him one time slam this meaty hand down on a table and break one of the table legs. And I thought, this guy's a giant. He could kill me with a stroke. I feared him, but I loved him, and he loved me. We can fear God, and it ought to drive him into our, his presence Here's where I want to be, Lord, in the shadow of your wings, underneath your mercy. I don't want to be distant trying to hide from you. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice in trembling. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice that you can know him and, and that he's still extending grace to you and I in this world today. That word worships could be rendered serve. As in when Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This instructs them to act with reverence, with deep appreciation, deep apprehension as they enter into the presence of the Almighty God. Rejoice with trembling. This is, a, this is an evangelistic summons. Choose this day whom you will serve for their salvation and no other name, the Bible declares. Worship the Lord Jesus Christ. You must turn away from your selfish lifestyles from your, and acknowledge that it is God who holds you and your life in his hands. The very breath you just drew is by his grace and by his mercy. Do homage to the Son. I like the King James better here. Kiss the Son. That's the picture of a king who's been conquered by another king throwing himself down in abject humility, grabbing hold of the lowest part of the king who stands above him 
and kissing those feet and applying for mercy with all of his body posture and with all of his actions. Fall down today in humility. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Turn away from your wanton life of sin and bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? That he not become angry in his wrath and you perish in the way. There's an urgency in this. None of, those, none of us knows the day or the hour of our death. Those folks in Las Vegas weeks ago were at the, what they thought was the height of their life. They're in a concert with celebrated musicians. They're celebrating. They're reveling. They're partying. None of them had any idea that a few hundred yards away, an evil man in a hotel room planned to deal out death. My niece there in the audience in Las Vegas justified her actions. She's just having some fun. Just taking a break from her husband and three kids. You know the pressure of that. Surely God understands. So I get a little bit high. So I get a little bit drunk. You know, it really doesn't matter. God understands my need, my need for release. She wasn't prepared for the momentary rumble of God's anger. She wasn't in a condition of submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. I hate to say it and judge her, but she's a token Christian. She goes to church, but she's inches away from death. And now she's uncertain. Uncertain that there's a God who loves and uncertain that she should have any faith in him. Today is the day of salvation. This is the only day that you and I have. It's the only day we can be sure of. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. We could lay down tonight and the Lord could say, You've done enough. Come up here now. Today is the day of salvation. The last line's an echo of the beginning of the psalm. How blessed. Listen, I've said it. Everyone's on one path or the other. You're either moving toward the blessing of God and experiencing it in his life, or you're moving away towards the curse of God. Blessing also speaks of joy and peace for those who are rightly related to God. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. My question to you as you sit here this morning, have you taken refuge in the sun? Are you a darter? You sort of dart in and get under the shadow of his wings when you need it, and you, you dart out when there's something alluring out there in the world. Are you playing games with God? God is not playing games with you. He takes his holiness seriously. His wrath is building against the sons of this world. It's smoldering. The wick is lit. It's not yet a conflagration. But when it finally bursts into flame, mankind will have no more say, no more ability to put a stop to it than the firefighters have had to put out the fires in California in the West this year. God extends his hand. Come, take warning, be blessed. If you do not know Jesus Christ, there are men who will, I'm sure, sort of wander down here to the front of the church who are elders in this church. They will be glad to tell you how you can have and be sure that you have a relationship with God. Take advantage before the scepter subdues. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Again, um, 
There's a lot here that's left on the table. That's as it always is. But thank you for helping us today to understand something about it. There are two parts to your nature. There is love, but there's also anger. Lord God, help us as we, your people, reconcile our lives with you as we seek your face, trembling before your awesomeness, but also comfortable in your midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.